Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to the start of a, of a new Bible study. We've finished First Peter, and now we've gone back to the Old Testament. We'll do a New Testament book, an Old Testament book, and now we're doing the book of Hosea, the Old Testament prophet. I think you're going to find it to be really interesting uh, as we go through here. I don't know how many weeks, probably about 24, I'm guessing that'll put us, put us to the start of the new school year in August. Uh, but anyway, we're, we're glad that you're here to, to start it out with us. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to open up your word. Your word is life. It is powerful. And God, every time we open it, it is, we can hear your voice speaking to us. And so I pray that you'll do that again tonight as we talk about the background of Hosea and start looking at the book. I, I pray, Father, you'll bless it. And you, God, you'll just help us to somehow get a feel for what, uh, what you said to your people through this, this powerful Old Testament prophet. God, I pray that uh, those online as well, wherever they are, that God, you'd bless them. And may this just be a study the Holy Spirit teaches us. Uh, and we just pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hosea chapter 1. We're not going to get very far tonight. 1-1 one, is all we're going to get to. But whenever you look at a study like this, it's really, really important to look at the background so you can understand it a whole lot better. The background I'm going to give you tonight is not only going to help you with Hosea, it's also going to help you with a lot of the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament will make more sense, I believe, after our background study tonight. So first of all, let me say happy Valentine's Day to you. Uh, guys, if you've forgotten, you've got just a few hours left, but it is Valentine's Day, and I um, want to say happy Valentine's to all of you, and tonight begins a love story. But it's actually a love story that's gone wrong, gone bad, and we'll talk about that, because if you look at the introduction, first of all, letter A on your outline tonight, Perhaps Hosea is, is the strongest book in the, in the Old Testament. Seldom is the revelation of God mediated through such depth of personal anguish and suffering. And we're going to see that as we go through here. Hosea suffered greatly. And it was God's will for him to suffer because he, he, he was the message a lot of times, Old Testament prophets, they spoke the message. Hosea was the message. His life was the message. His family was the message. Very unusual. And so, we're going to see that tonight, uh, beginning tonight, as we look at this powerful Old Testament book. I didn't know much about Hosea. I was raised in church and there my whole life, but I don't really remember my pastor preaching on it. He may have. I just don't remember it. Um, ever hearing Hosea preached or taught as a book. And so I, I really didn't know that much about it. I knew it was a book in the Old Testament. I knew he's a prophet, and that was about all I knew. Uh, and so I went to Oklahoma Baptist University and, and went into ministry. One of the first classes I took was a class called Amos and Hosea, where we looked at the prophets Amos and Hosea because they ministered at the same time in the 8th century. They were contemporaries along with Isaiah and Micah from the southern kingdom. And so, so Amos and Hosea are usually prophets that are taught together in seminary and Bible, Bible classes. So I took a class under Dr. Dick Rader called Amos and Hosea. I thought, well, I don't know much about them. I'll figure it out. So I got in that class and found it fascinating. Amos, first of all, was fascinating. But then we got to Hosea, and I never knew his story. I never knew how it fit together. 
and I, and I really found it fascinating. It's one of my favorite classes that I took in, in college. So I got to seminary, and they were offering it there, Amos and Hosea. And so I took it again under Dr. Dan Kent, uh, Southwestern Seminary. And again, it was so powerful. The, the Hebrew wording is so powerful. We'll get into that as we, as we start looking why these words were used and why they were such powerful words. We'll, we'll get into the depth of the emotion that you feel. Two chapters, 11 and 14, are some of the most beautiful poems you'll ever read in Scripture. Beautiful poems that God tells to His people. And so 11 and 14, if you want to get a sneak peek, read those tonight. Not now, we're doing, the, we're doing the study. But when you get home tonight, read chapters 11 and 14 and get a sneak peek of beautiful poems. God telling his people, I, I know you've messed up, but I love you and I can't give you up. And which is what Hosea felt toward his, his wife. Hosea, uh, if you don't know much about the book, was, was the heartbroken husband of an unfaithful wife. His intense love for her would not allow him to give up on her. He should have just said, look, you go your way and I'll go my way. But he loved her so much he, he could not give her up. So what you see through the book is simply a heartbroken, hurt, weeping man. You see a man who um, married a prostitute. We're going to get into that next week. He married he married a prostitute, and she couldn't give her lovers up, so she kept going back. And you see pictures in the book of him going and getting his wife out of the brothels and dragging her back home, thinking, if I just love her a little more, she won't do that anymore. And then one time, she went into the, uh, to the marketplace, and as prostitutes were often done in that day they were sold she, she was sold and we're going to see later in the book where where Hosea gathers all of his savings together to go buy her back just think okay if I buy her back if I actually spend all I have to get her back that will do it she'll stay and she'll love me and me only it didn't work he bought her back brought her back and said you'll love me and me only now and it lasted for about that long and she went again. So God did this through the prophet Hosea to give us a picture. That is a picture of God and you. God is Hosea. You and I, we are the unfaithful wives. We're the ones that keep going back to our gods and keep leaving him and going to other things and, and loving him with all of our heart, then turn around and, and, and chasing something else. We're the ones that, that's the unfaithful wife. But God loves us so much, he can't give us up. And that's the picture of Hosea. So we're going to see the depth of this as we go through it. So it's really a powerful, powerful little book. As I said, the man was the message, which is very unusual because prophets would deliver God's message but their personal lives were often not involved. In fact, most prophets, you don't even know who their family is. You, are they married? Are they not married? Do they have kids? What are the names of the kids? We don't even know these things. But in Hosea, we know who his wife is. We know her name. We know his kids. We know their names. And they play, all play a vital part because we're getting intensely personal now. 
He and his family were a part of the message. His wife and three children played a vital part in the heartbreaking roles. So it's a strange book in a way. God commanded a man to marry a prostitute. Why, why would God command a preacher? Why would he command his spokesman? Why would he command a man of God to go marry a prostitute? Well, we'll get into that next week because next week's when he <laughs> gives him the command. So we're going to talk about all the theories and the angles about that starting next Wednesday night. Look at letter B on your outline. Who was Hosea? Let's get to know him just a little bit. His name means, and names meant something important in those days. His name means salvation. His name appears four times in the Bible, uh, three times in the book and in Romans as well, chapter 9. But the name Hoshea with an S-H and Hosea are sometimes identical because whenever sometimes you transliterate from Hebrew into English, sometimes you translate it with an S-H and sometimes with an S. Uh, and so ho there was a Hoshea in the Bible. It was a king that doesn't appear to related to Hosea. But he Hosea did share a name with Joshua because the name Joshua means salvation. And the name Hosea means salvation. And in the New Testament, whose name meant salvation? Jesus. Yeshua. Hosea. Yeshua and Jesus, all meaning salvation. So a lot of theologians see the same plight of Hosea and Jesus mirroring each other. Both were men of sorrows, right? Both um, had such a love for, for others that it hurt them. And so there are some that see a commonality that the vehicle of their ministry was suffering in both Jesus and Hosea. In fact, Wheeler Robinson wrote a book entitled The Cross of Hosea. Very interesting, saying both of these men walked the valley of tears. Hosea and Jesus, and compare the two because their names mean the same thing. Now, look at letter C on your outline, the date, the audience, and the purpose. Hosea prophesied, and this may not mean a lot to you now, but I'll explain it in just a moment. And during the latter part of the 8th century, 800 years before Christ, this period was an extremely difficult one in Israel's history, just before the northern kingdom went into exile. And Hosea's primary attention was the northern kingdom. Now remember, Israel divided into, they had a civil war, like the U.S. The U.S. stayed together, Israel didn't. And so you have the north and the south. The north was called Israel, the south was called Judah. So sometimes it's referred, referred to as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He preached in the northern kingdom. Now, both of them went into exile, the north and the south, the north went into the exile much earlier than the south. So the north went into exile to Assyria around 722, whereas the south around 586 went into a, to, to Babylon. And so he's, he is in the northern kingdom, and that's who he's talking to. He uses the word Ephraim 35 times to describe God's people in the northern kingdom. Why did he call him Ephraim? 
Why not just say Israel or Jews? Who's Ephraim? And why did he call him Ephraim? Because Ephraim was the pet name God had for his children. You know, some of your kids, maybe you have names that you, you call them because they're your kids and you knew them better than you know them better than anybody else. And you know them by one name and nobody else knows them by that. It's his pet name for them. My son's Boomer. Some of you probably know that. You may know him as Camden to family and friends. He's Boomer. It's his nickname. That's his pet name. Ephraim was the pet name for Israel. So Hosea uses Ephraim more than any other name for Israel in there. Why? To show that God has this deep affection for his children. He calls them by their pet name. The name he knew and they knew that was, had that emotional bond between the two of them. So 35 times he says, oh Ephraim, Ephraim, I can't give you up. I love you too much. And that's God pleading with his children. So that's who he's preaching to and why he uses some of the phrases and the names that he uses. Sometimes it's narrative, sometimes it's oracles, and sometimes it's poetry. But it's a beautiful book as you put it together. Now, look at letter D on your outline and let's see what was going on. This is important to understand the book and much of the Old Testament. What was going on both nationally and internationally? Let's, let's cover both. First of all, what was going on nationally within the nation of Israel itself? The Bible places the ministry of Hosea, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Berah, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay? So you got four kings there, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Four kings of the south. Remember? He didn't talk to the south. He's talking to the north. So why are the four kings of the south mentioned from the southern kingdom? Probably because these are the same kings mentioned in Isaiah. So that's the biblical writer's way of telling us Hosea and Isaiah prophesied at the same time. So, the only king that's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, look at the end of it, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of northern kingdom, Israel. Now, Jeroboam was the king of Israel whenever Hosea started his ministry. Altogether, Hosea ministered about 26 years. Can you imagine 26 years of heartache with your wife constantly leaving you and you going back and getting her? So, 26 years, around 748 to around 722 B.C. But let me tell you about the king at the time Hosea started. His name is Jeroboam II. Let me tell you a few things about him. Jeroboam II, the king when Hosea started, reigned 40 years. That's a long time for a king in Israel. And all the time Jeroboam was, was ministering or, or reigning, uh, it was marked in Israel by a time of prosperity. National security, the borders were secure, 
Nobody was coming in and making war upon you. The economy was booming. Life was good all 40 years. And so they loved Jeroboam. Everybody loved him. Man, we have a great king. And his influence extended farther than anybody since the days of Solomon. That's what we're told. Here's the problem. The Bible said Jeroboam did more evil in the sight of God than anyone else. What? I thought things were great. Well, they were, they were good with economy. They were good with their borders. They were good and everybody's getting along. But spiritually, they were terrible. There was a spiritual apathy. People would go to church and sleep through it. The, the poor were being oppressed by the rich. They were worshiping other gods. Dishonest merchants, cheating, fraud, businesses were corrupt. In fact, Amos says you have turned justice into poison. So it was a dark day spiritually, even though things were booming in the, in the, in the, the country. So just after... Hosea began his ministry. That was the climate. Jeroboam was still the king. Just after Hosea began his ministry, Jeroboam II died. And that was the climate that he had ministered in. Was this well, everything? Everything's good. Everybody's just apathetic spiritually. Life is good. We don't need God. There's nothing to cry out for. We're not going into bondage to anybody. Everything's great. What do we need God for? And so Hosea appeared to try to let them know God loves you and your waywardness is breaking his heart. So that's what was going on within the country. What was going on internationally, outside of Israel? So let's look at, the, at what was going on out there. Outside of Israel, Assyria had just emerged as the new dominant power of the world. Assyria had powerful leadership under Tiglath-Pileser. He's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 13 of Hosea. Tiglath-Pileser III. The Bible refers to him uh, as in Isaiah as Pul, P-U-L. That was his nickname. So whenever you read about Pul, that is Tiglath-Pileser, who was the great king of Assyria that led them to their height of greatness. It continued under his successors, uh, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, and Sennacherib, who's mentioned in, in the Bible as well. So Assyria controls the, 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 great, the strongest empire in the world for 300 years, 900 to 600 BC. They ruled the Middle East. They ruled Mesopotamia. They ruled Egypt. They ruled the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, all the way down to Babylon. They, the whole region they were in control of. And they did it because their weapons were stronger than everybody else's because they, they, they started using iron weapons, which was different. Everybody using bronze. They started developing iron chariots and started horses and warfare and iron weapons, and it just blew everybody out of the water. They were much more superior, and they ruled the world. So, what Hosea says is, if you, Israel, don't come back to the Lord, he's going to bring judgment upon you. Assyria is going to come in, and they're going to destroy you. We know from history it, it happened. But internationally, that's what was going on. Now, here's one other thing to keep in mind. 
Assyria was the strongest power in the world. Egypt, just to the south of Israel, they're strong in name, but their glory days are behind them. But they still had a name. Oh, we're powerful. No, they were really under the control of Assyria. So here's what Israel did. You got Egypt to the south, and you've got, wait a minute, this is north. You got Egypt to the south, and you have Assyria to the north, and you're right in the middle. What do you do? Well, Hosea says you trust God because he's more powerful than both of them. But Jeroboam and some of the other kings thought, well, I'm not certain we can trust God. We better make these political alliances. And so they would go to Assyria and they'd pay tribute, bully money. I'll give you my lunch money if you don't jump on me. And they'd pay them tribute. They'd go to the south and pay Egypt tribute. Go to the north and pay Assyria tribute and run to the south. And they'd keep both of them from jumping on them. And Hosea and Isaiah and the 8th century prophet says, you are fools for doing that. You're like a silly bird. Fly one way and fly another way and fly one way and fly another way. Just trust God. They didn't do that. So that's kind of some of the background that's happening whenever, whenever Hosea started the ministry. Now let's look at letter E on your outline, the historical background just a little further. I mentioned earlier that Israel divided northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and they had this strong civil war. There's always a strong rivalry between the north and the south. Jeroboam dies during Hosea's ministry in the north, and over the next 20 years of Hosea's ministry, six kings, six, try to replace Jeroboam. Jeroboam, 40, remember, 40 years. Six and 20 years. One only lasted two months. So the kingship had a negative view by people now. So as you read Hosea, you kind of get the sense, I see now why the negative view of the kings really appearing because they're kind of leading God, uh, leading God's people into, into the wrong way. Here's something else that, um, that was going on and, and I, I think this will help make a lot of the Old Testament more clear. Let's look next in the historical background at Baal and the fertility cults. Baal and the fertility cults. The Canaanites, if, if just stepping back for a moment, remember God promised Abraham a land flowing with milk and honey. It turned out to be Israel, that land. was Israel today. Before Israel went into the land, it was controlled by the Canaanites, the land of Canaan, right? Canaanites, there were people that lived there. So Israel went in and displaced the Canaanites, and God told them, Joshua, whenever you go in, kill every last one of them, because if you don't, the gods they're worshiping will become a thorn in your side, and they're going to end up leading you away from worship of me. So you kill every last one of them. You and I look at that and go, well, that's horrible, killing people. No, kill them all because they will, they will corrupt you. Well, Israel went into the land, and they left some of them. Well, we'll coexist with the Canaanites. The Canaanites had this pantheon of gods that they worshipped. Not just one, many gods. And sure enough, Israel was led astray to worship the Canaanite gods. One of those was Baal. You know Baal, B-A-A-L, from 
from the Old Testament. Actually, it's pronounced Baal, but in Texas, that's always been Baal. You know, where I grew up, it was as well. So the, all the pantheon of gods in Canaan, Baal was the boss. He was the chief god. He was the god of the storm. It, it was said that Baal was the rider of the clouds. So whenever you're living in a part of the country where you need rain to survive, you ever been in the Middle East? I don't get much rain there. You're a part of the world where you need rain to survive. The God of rain is, becomes really important to you. We just know God's the only true and living God. He controls everything. They thought there was a different God for everything. So they worshiped all this pantheon of gods, but the boss was the God of rain because we need it to live. So Baal was the God of rain. We learn a great deal about Baal from the ancient texts that we've uncovered in cuneiform tablets. Uh, written in Ugaritic and Phoenician inscriptions, both so we kind of can piece together what they believed in these days. The meaning of the word Baal is Lord. So that was just their way of calling him the, the Prince Baal of the earth, the Lord of the earth. Now, as I mentioned, there were many gods in this pantheon, and Baal got to be the most important because he defeated the god of the sea, Yam. So he defeated Yam, so now he is the chief god, and he had two wives. Baal had two wives. One was called Anat, A-N-A-T, and the other wife was called Asherah. You remember from the Old Testament, the Asherah poles that, that Israel would worship, coming from the name of the wife of Baal. In one of the myths, Baal was finally defeated by another god, Mot, M-O-T, which is the god of death. Anat, his wife, raised him to life again, Baal, and overthrew Mot, overthrew death, and so Baal still reigns supreme. Now, this is all influencing Israel, keep this in mind. In addition, avoiding famine and having healthy offspring, uh, children, a lot of children, those were major concerns in the ancient Near East. Most cultures had gods of fertility. So, pray to the God of fertility, you have more kids. Pray to the God of fertility, you'll have crops. Your crops will do well. The rains will come. And so you pray to Baal for the rains and fertility gods for the crops. And if you got that covered, life is good. So the Egyptians had Osiris as the God of fertility. And Mesopotamians, they had Tammuz as the God of fertility. They had these. Well, there was the God of fertility of Baal and the fertility gods in, uh, in Canaan. Israel, being an agricultural people in a dry climate, worshiping a God who they thought could send rain and make your crops grow, would be very tempting to worship, wouldn't it? So there you are, God's people. You've entered the promised land. You're surrounded by other people who are worshiping Baal and the fertility gods, and you're beginning to think, okay, I worship only Yahweh, but you know, it really wouldn't hurt. It could be a dry year. We had a drought last year. It really wouldn't hurt to worship Baal and the fertility gods and just to make sure our crops grow. So, Israel started doing both. 
worshiping God and worshiping Baal. Kind of makes more sense knowing that background. You think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and there'd been a three-year drought. And because the God of Israel had put a drought on everybody and then says, let's build a fire. And whoever answers an uh, altar, whoever answers with fire, uh, that's the true God. And then the rainstorm comes later. It was all an attack against Baal as being more, less powerful than God of Israel. So it kind of makes more sense. And that's why Elijah stood and said, listen, you worship Baal or worship God, but you've got to make up your mind you can't do both. Because they were doing both. So, in Israel, be very tempting to, to worship Baal. Hosea mentioned in chapter 2, verse 5, that the Israelites looked to Baal to provide not just food, but every aspect of life. Water and food and linen and oil and drink. They, they started trusting Baal for everything when they should be trusting God, Yahweh. One other aspect of Baal worship makes it the layers go a little deeper. Baal worship also believed that whenever you worshiped Baal, you would grab a prostitute and have sex at the Baal altar because that helped your crops grow as well. It was an act of worship. So you would go plant your crops. You would uh, then go to the Asherahs or the Baal images and idols and you would bow down and you worship and there would always be prostitutes hanging around because there would always be people needing a prostitute there they were called cult prostitutes because they were part of the of the ritual so then you would have sex with a prostitute and you'd go about your way thinking aha I have it all covered I've planted my crops in the ground I've prayed to the Baal uh, to the god of Baal and I've done a sacrificial act to the fertility gods and so that was very common in other cultures and guess what Israel started doing the same. Imagine worshiping Yahweh, going home, planting your crops, then sneaking over and worshiping Baal and having sex with a prostitute, and then going back and worshiping God the next week. That's what was happening when Hosea started. Some people believe Hosea's wife was a cult prostitute. If she was, whew, why on earth would God command a man of God to go grab one of the prostitutes around the Baal shrine and marry her? Well, it would be a powerful image of what the people were doing spiritually, wouldn't it? They were doing the same thing. So we'll get into more of that next week about who his wife really was. So you can see what Israel was doing, and you kind of picture why they're doing it. They want to cover all their bases, so they have lots of kids, and they have lots of food. So the fact Israel did this to God was appalling, obviously. To Hosea, it was appalling. So to mix the worship of God and the worship of Baal was appalling. Chapter 2, verse 16 of Hosea, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. 
Hosea said, God is telling you, you're no longer calling me Yahweh. Now you're calling me Baal. Can you imagine getting your wife and your girlfriend's name mixed up and calling one the other? Are your husband and your boyfriend getting their names mixed up and you call one the other? Or you call someone by your old girlfriend's name or old boyfriend's name? Yeah, that gets awkward fast, doesn't it? That's what they were doing. God says, the worst part is you're calling me Baal. You get this mixed up. So, this was the culture into which Hosea arrives. And much of the Old Testament kind of I think will make more sense in the Baal worship and why it was such an attraction and a draw for the Israelites. Because you and I look at it and go, what is their problem? Stop worshiping Baal. But we don't come from that culture of, I want my crops to grow. I want my family to do well. I want to make a good living. I want life to be better. We, come from, we don't come from that. They did. So now let's look at the cycle. There is a cycle in Hosea. You see five cycles go around, but it's all really the same cycle. Here's what the cycle is. The people sin. God sends judgment. They repent, and he forgives them, and it starts over. They sin. He brings judgment. They repent. We're so sorry, and he forgives. And it happens again. They sin, and he brings judgment. They repent, and it happens, and he forgives. It happens again. And after a while, you would think God on the back end would say, I've, I've seen this before. I'm not forgiving anymore. But he never did that. The cycle continues all through Hosea. That's also what's called the cycle of the judges. If you study the book of Judges, there's a cycle, you see. You see sin and judgment, and the people repent, cry out, and God sends a deliverer in the form of a judge. And that's the cycle of the whole book of Judges as well. That sometimes is our cycle, isn't it? We sin. Something bad happens. We're sorry. We beg forgiveness, and God forgives. And we do it again. So that cycle sometimes can be our cycle as well. A couple more thoughts, and then we'll look at verse 1, and we'll close. Here's the outline I want to give you just briefly of the book. It's very simple. Chapter, if you look at it there, uh, chapters 1 through 3 is Hosea's marriage. And then chapters 4 through 14, Hosea's message. Very simple. First three chapters is his marriage. We're going to talk about his marriage and his kids. Really interesting for the first, first few weeks. And then we get to his message to the God's people from chapters 4 to 14. That is kind of broken down a little bit further. Uh, Hosea's message is into Israel, uh, Israel's unfaithfulness, chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 3. And then uh, you'll see next Israel's punishment, chapter 6, verse 4 to chapter 10, verse 15. And then God's faithfulness, 11 through 14. And those include two beautiful poems of God to his people. So that's an outline, very simple outline. Now, very quickly before we get to verse 1, why is this book important? Let me mention five reasons very quickly. Number one, our personal lives must reflect our worship with God and our relationship with God. Hosea's personal life was a vital part of who he was, should be us as well. Number two, the worship of other gods must be rejected. 
you and I have every temptation to worship something other than God, just as they did. They're just called different things today. Don't worship anything, but put God first in your life and nothing else first in your life. I think it's a good principle. Number three, we must look to God to be our sole provider. Everything you have is from God. Everything God provides is from, is from Him, is for, for you. And so, look to God to be your sole provider in life. Number four, don't get complacent in your worship and service to God. Israel did under Jeroboam II. Don't become complacent. Don't sleep when you get here. Pay attention. Study God's Word. Uh, just may, don't get complacent in your relationship with God and in your worship of Him. And number five, I think another principle that we learn is that national, national peace and security is important and the economy is important. And there are other national issues that, that gauge the barometer in a country, and that's spiritually. You know, I think sometimes we as people, we say, well, we need leaders that they're going to secure our borders and our economy needs to be better and internationally people fear us again and all these other things. And we kind of put on the back burner that really the most important part of our nation is what happens spiritually here. So I think that's the principle here. Things were great. Man, their borders were secure and our economy was good and everybody, everybody wasn't bothering them internationally. But God says, I look at you and my heart hurts because spiritually you're not there. So don't just look at these issues as November arrives. Oh, if we cover those, we're good. No, no. Look at the spiritual nature of our nation as well. I think there's good issues that, that come from this book that we can see. Now let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. We'll close. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of the north, king of Israel. Let's look at what God's saying to begin the book right quick. Notice the phrase, the word of the Lord. The most frequent expression that is used to introduce a prophetic book is the phrase, the word of the Lord came to, in the person's name. That is said in Hosea, it's said in Joel, in Jonah, in Micah, in Zephaniah, in Haggai, in Zechariah, and in Malachi, the word of the Lord came to this person. And that's how God introduces, this is the word of the Lord. Sometimes it says the vision of, and that's mentioned in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Obadiah. And that's how God's word is introduced. The vision of God to Isaiah. And then sometimes the word oracle is used. The oracle of God to uh, Nahum and Habakkuk and Malachi. And then sometimes it's introduced as the words of, and that's happened twice, Jeremiah and Amos. But the most common way is the word of the Lord came to this person. When it says the word of the Lord, not words plural of the Lord, it's just trying to capture all that God said in a unity. It's, it's ushering us into the presence of God and not just into the presence of the prophet. Because to be honest, if we just study Hosea and miss what God says, we're no better off. So we need to study, ushers us not just into the prophet's presence, but most of all into God's presence. But notice the next phrase, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. God's words did not just arrive to Hosea through speculation or through wisdom. It was an event. 
God, through an event, through a revelation to a particular man, revealed not Hosea's words, but God's words. Why is that important? Because you and I both hear so often, oh, the Bible's just a, it's just a book by men. No. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. What to Hosea's words? Oh, this is just a book. This is just a book. What men think. This is what, it's just a book of men. I hear that all the time from critics. No, no, no. It's not just a book of men. It's the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. What Hosea's word? It was God's word. So don't just dismiss this book as a book by men. It's the word of the Lord it came to these men. And they're saying what God said. Now, one other thing, notice here, it says the son of Beri. Who on earth is Beri? Well, we don't know. We know that it was Hosea's daddy. Tradition says, Jewish tradition says, Beri was a prophet too. Uh, And he only had one prophecy. And it appeared in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Let me read it to you. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and the testimony? If they'll not speak according to his word, it's because they have no dawn. And that's it. That's all we have of Beri's prophecy. Hosea, we have 12, 14 chapters worth. Beri, we only have one small portion of what we think he prophesied. So, Beri, we're not certain, but um, there was also a Bira, B-E-E-R-A-H rather than A-I. Sometimes there were alternate spellings of names, which there are today in our culture. Beri was sometimes identified with Bira. Bira is mentioned one time in the Bible, 1 Chronicles 5, 6. And all we're told is Bira was taken away captive when Tiglath-Pileser invaded Israel and carried him off. That's very possible, isn't it? Because that's during Hosea's time. So Birah might have been his daddy and might have been carried away captive once that Assyria attacked. Very possible. So we'll stop there tonight and starting next week chapter 2 um, chapter 1 verse 2 notice first verse that we're going to look at next week when the lord spoke through hosea the lord said uh, through the lord to hosea go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the lord so next week we'll start getting into god telling him to go marry a prostitute we're going to get into all that entails. It's going to get really interesting starting next week. All right. Look forward to our study and glad that you're here. Let's pray together and we'll close. Father, thank you tonight for raising up people like Hosea. When times demand it the most and God sending a strong message, even, even through his personal life, strong message to your people of what they're actually doing to you and to your heart. Father, give us, give us a renewed picture of what our sin does to you through this book. Give us a renewed picture of how much you love us and how you don't give up on us. And God, give us once again a renewed picture of our relationship with you 
and how important it is not to mix other things with you, but make you the sole priority and object of our affection in life. So, Father, teach us through this book in the coming weeks. We look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.